You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. And to my Every Nation family scattered across the GTA, uh, Southern Ontario, it's great to be with you in your homes or wherever you're watching, hopefully with some uh, other people around you as we uh, try to get in this rhythm of once a month meeting in person and then the other Sundays meeting in smaller groupings in our homes uh, together. And um, yeah, just to say next Sunday, super excited for our pop-up service. Um, for me personally, uh, there's just something about being in God's presence with God's people um, that is just really hard hard to do that by yourself or even in smaller groups as, as much as we love that in, in homes right now and God can meet us in significant ways there. Uh, for me, when we've come together in these pop-up services, just the time of, of God's presence, just there's, a, there's an anointing there that is just not uh, repeated or replicated in, in other places. So I really want to encourage you, especially for those of you maybe sitting on the fence, do I, don't I go, uh, really encourage you. We're in a venue that's a 300-seater, plenty of space. If you still have a little bit of concerns, there's plenty of space to to be safe um but I do encourage and exhort you, you know, two years, two years has changed our rhythms, changed our habits. Um, a lot of those have been bad ones. And so we need to now get back into exercising of being together in God's people, uh, in God's presence. So I want to encourage you to come out. We have an extended time of worship. We're trying not to replicate what we do here in our online service in, in person. We try to give extended time of worship. Uh, we shorten the word time. We take a series break, allow God to give us just a, a pastoral prophetic touch point where things are at the church. Uh, in the future ones, we're going to look forward to seeing different voices and, and more people participating in the service rather than just seeing the same faces that you see on the screen. And so, uh, yeah, I just want to encourage you. You're going to hear some more information uh, later on about that pop-up service. But uh, I would love to to be with you and see with you, see you there and uh, to worship with you. All right, we're going to jump back into our series, part three, as we lead up to Easter. Easter is around the corner. And uh, this is typically a time in the church calendar that's called Lent. And uh, it's supposed to be a time of um, of sober reflection, of uh, remembering the path that Jesus took to the cross. Uh, we call this series cruciform, which means cross-shaped, and um, and how the cross really is the symbol of Christianity. It's central to Christianity, which for us, uh, we, we don't realize how kind of absurd and funny, not funny is not the right word, but just bizarre that would have been for the earliest Christians. The, the cross was a, a form of execution, a cruel form of execution. and uh, But that became something that they gloried in and boasted. And Paul the Apostle said it like this, has become the foundational scripture for us through the series. He says, we preach Christ, not just Christ's teachings, not just love your neighbor, turn the other cheek. We preach Christ crucified. There's something in the death, the scandalous death of Jesus. And he said that for some people, when you think about the cross, it's a stumbling block or it's foolishness. And then for others, the power and wisdom of God. So it can be confusing. What are we to make of the cross? Did Jesus have to die? I've heard someone say, couldn't Jesus have lived a really full and good long life, died in old age, and then three days later be resurrected again? Uh, was it necessary for him to go through? And um, and in some ways, there's a human responsibility into the death and crucifixion. An innocent man uh, was condemned to death in a very cruel way. But also we understand and see there's a divine sovereignty in, in Jesus dying. And so we're now, uh, throughout the rest of this series, going to kind of turn and try and unpack 
what is that wisdom and power that Paul talks about that's in this death, that's in this death of this crucified Christ. And so um, today we're going to be talking about uh, the cross and atonement. What does the cross accomplish for us? What does the cross mean? What is its significance? And so uh, we're going to turn to a passage in Romans chapter 3. Paul again writes to the Romans. And um, and he's going to help us make a little bit more sense now of what this death means. And so verse 21, we're going to read till verse 26. It says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's a very rich passage, these few verses, and uh, definitely won't do it all justice in today's message. But there are a few things uh, that I want uh, us to pay attention to. And so we read in that passage, and there's something about God's righteousness. Um, righteousness is the same word that's often used for justice. And so we can talk about God's righteousness, God's justice. We talk to, it, it, it alludes to that all of us are in the same boat. We've sinned. We fall short of God's standard. And so we have God's righteousness. We don't meet that righteousness for some reason. And then we have this uh, uh, this uh, phrase of, of Jesus being an atonement, our redemption. What does that mean? And then our uh, response to that. And so we're going to unpack those briefly today and, uh, and have a look at what that all means. And so the first thing we we'll turn to is this whole idea of justice, this whole idea of righteousness. And in our world, we can phrase it like the problem of evil and injustice. And so nowadays, uh, we're very aware, very aware of social and systemic injustices and evil in our world. I mean, you just think in the last couple of years alone, the last couple of years alone, we've had the, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, obviously the pandemic. We've seen social, racial, economic injustices through some of those things. Um, we've seen church abuse scandals that church is not exempt from some of the evil injustice in the world. Uh, we see geopolitical conflicts and atrocities, and obviously we're very keenly aware of war that's happening right now in the 21st century with all our progress, with all our technology, with all our supposed getting better as a humanity. And so if anything that just should underscore the obvious, something is really wrong in the world and something needs to be fixed in the world, right? That something's really wrong and something needs to be put right. And so when we see these injustices, whether it's it's on a TV at a place far away from us, like maybe right now in the Ukraine, or whether it's close to home, whether it's an injustice you've experienced firsthand or seeing the breakdown in family relationships, whatever it may be, um, a human response should be outrage. It should bother us. It should bother us when we see these things. Um, outrage to evil and injustice is a fitting response. In fact, um, without that, sometimes in some of these uh, social justice matters that come up, people have said, where is the outrage? There should be more outrage 
with this particular thing or that particular cause. And so we get that as a humanity. We get that we should be uh, bothered by the injustices and the evil we see us. And so this is actually uh, what we'd say is a signpost. It actually points us to the justice of God. In the Christian worldview, we're made in the image of God. And so if God is righteous, if God is just, there's a sense of his righteousness and just we feel. And so when we see injustice and we see evil, it's natural, should be natural for us to respond to that and say, that's not right, that should be changed, that should be fixed. But it's also not just a signpost, it's a broken signpost, because it doesn't matter almost how much we try to fix justices. Sometimes in us trying to do solutions, we actually begin to be part of the injustices. Sometimes we have a very unjust response to justice. You know, I think about um, cancel culture. I think about how in some ways maybe that that is a way of responding to injustice or responding to something, but it's a horrible way. It's it's a very vindictive, very uh, punitive um, way to respond to some form of injustice or evil. And then in the other spectrum, there's nothing. We don't do anything. Impunity. We just don't let, we don't let things go by. We let things pass. And so, Somewhere on those extremes in that spectrum, our hearts long for a justice that's righteous, a justice that's just. Um, and so our outrage, our outrage, um, and our being bothered by, uh, things in our world of evil injustice and suffering, um, in a way helps us understand uh, God's outrage, or biblically what was called God's wrath. Now, when you hear God's wrath, I don't know what immediately comes to your mind or what emotion you begin to feel. I think for some people, maybe a lot of us, when we think of God's wrath, we think of it in very human terms. We think of a very explosive emotion of anger. We think of a very volatile person, someone who's going to fly off the handle and in retribution just lash out. Sometimes we might think of that abusive father or parents, alcohol, just their, their wrath just spills out. And so you kind of walk around them on eggshells. Some people have that picture. Uh, of God when we talk about God's wrath. Um, and as, as, as human as that might be, that isn't what biblically is God's wrath. In fact, it's less emotion. It's more his righteous action towards things of injustice. But the wrath of God, kind of like our outrage, um, is the appropriate and necessary expression of his love, his care, and his empathy for us. You think about loved ones. Does it bother you when you see them do something that's destructive in their lives? It should bother you, you know, as a parent or as a, you know, as you maybe have a, a very close friend and you begin to see them make silly decisions in their lives and you see them taking a path that is going to lead to destruction. It should uh, be an expression of our love, care and empathy to say, to be bothered by that, to be angry at that. Like, no, that's going to destroy your life. Um, there are many moments in scripture where God's anger, God's wrath comes out. But just one, Isaiah chapter 10, gives us a picture of the love, the care, and the empathy that God has, particularly for people who are oppressed, marginalized, powerless. God's often a defender of those people. And he says this, woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. You know, actually for many in our world, having the idea of a, a righteous, wrathful God is actually a comforting and empowering picture of God because they have been on, uh, they are the ones that have often been oppressed 
Um, and so what we could say then about God's wrath, it's really his displeasure towards all that stands against his redemptive purpose, and it's his action in setting right what is wrong. It's one thing to be outraged. It's another thing to be uh, active in seeking to right an injustice. And so that really becomes more the divine picture of God's justice and righteousness. And so some would say, well, what about Christianity? Isn't Christianity all about forgiveness? Isn't it like forgive and forget? Isn't, isn't that what God should be like? Isn't that what we should be like? And so in some ways, forgiveness is a massive part of Christianity. But forgiveness, it depends how we think about forgiveness. But forgiveness really isn't enough. It really isn't enough. Um, you know, sometimes when we have a knee-jerk reaction, oh, just forgive and forget, when we some, see some major calamity, some major injustice, a, a school shooting or some terrible thing, oftentimes the appeal to Christians or, you know, the appeal to the Christian is, well, you just need, you need to forgive those people, forgive those. And it, what it can do, what a forgive and forget knee-jerk reaction can do is because it can really uh, make a mockery of those people that have experienced that evil and that injustice. Now, we want to get to a place of forgiveness. Um, but sometimes we need to understand the weight of the sense of injustice. I remember, uh, you know, as we had younger kids, you know, one of the most humbling thing I think for parents is um, having to ask for forgiveness from your kids, your young kids as well, particularly. Um, but I think it's a very helpful and healthy thing, parents. And so I encourage you to, as, as much as it's, it's humbling, is to, it's really good for us to practice uh, a sense of modeling forgiveness, of repentance and forgiveness before our kids. And I remember um, kids typically are very quick to forgive. Like they just, and so I remember sometimes it, maybe it was, uh, I said something that was very hurtful. Maybe I acted in frustration or anger, whatever it was. And I remember saying, hey, uh, I'm sorry for doing that. That hurt you. And be like, oh, it's okay, Dad. It's okay. And I remember being increasingly bothered by that. And so what I began to just say is, no, it's not okay. What I did was wrong. And I shouldn't have done that. And then it hurt you. And for that, I'm sorry. And I, and I did that just to add that to get, because I think it then begins to get a sense of, yeah, like that was wrong. We feel the weight of that. That school shooting is wrong. That's evil. That's unjust. That's not. And before we quick to move on to the forgiveness, we have to have a sense of that. And so forgiveness is not enough if it's not going to be understood in the context of justice. And justice always needs mercy accompanied with it. You know, if we just have justice, no mercy, that's cruel. If we just have mercy with no justice, that's really kind of sentimental, uh, emotional, uh, an indulgence. And so the message of the cross is this. Fleming Rutledge in her book puts it beautifully. She says, the pervasive and monstrous nature of injustice and evil around the world forces us to acknowledge that forgiveness alone does not give a true picture of God's purpose. God's wrath can be embraced because it comes wrapped in God's mercy. The wrath of God falls upon God himself by God's own choice out of God's own love. And so we look at the world and we see the evil and we see injustice and um, and we're outraged. We should be bothered by that. But what happens when the evil and injustice is not just out there, but in here? What happens when you and I become the objects of that 
wrath of God. What happens when you and I become the the uh, object of his love expressed in his anger at the way that we destroy our lives through sin? And so let's talk a little bit about sin and atonement. Now we covered uh, sin in last week's uh, message. She did a great job of that, talking about how when we think of sins, we can think of many different things. A lot of times we instantly think of the list of sins, sins of commission or sins of omission, things that we do or things that we should do but we don't do. Um, but then there's also this idea that sin is is a power. Sin yields a power over us that continuously uh, perpetuates um, our sinful habits and patterns. And so uh, there's a parable, we don't have time to, to look at it in the Bible, it's a, a very powerful parable that Jesus talks about in the Bible. And he talks about, he highlights the, the Pharisee and the tax collector and they're coming to a time of prayer. And uh, if you have no idea what those terms mean pharisee was like the religious people of the day the pastor you know the person who should really be you know like is you know models god well and tax collector was like kind of the scum of the earth the worst of the worst right like sinner like really really bad and uh he flips it and you know the 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 priest, the Pharisee comes and his prayer is like, God, thank you that I do. I go to Bible study. I show up at my small group. I tithe to my church. I'm, I come to all the pop-up worship services. I do everything that's expected of me. And I'm not like this guy over here. And this guy over here can't even lift his eyes to look at God. He just has a sense of his shame and his sin and his guilt. And he just mutters this prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus is telling the story in the presence of said Pharisees. And he says, that guy walks away having the kingdom. This guy, not so sure. What a major rebuke to them. What a major, like, you think you're in, you might be out. And those that are out, you're closer to the kingdom of God than you are. But you're closer if you're able to acknowledge you're a sinner. It's predicated on that guy saying, I recognize that the evil and the injustice and the stuff that I get outraged isn't just out there. It's, it's in me here as well. And so that's always hard. It's hard for us. It's hard for people today to think of themselves as a sinner, as a bad person. And um, that's because when we think of sin, we often think of it in terms of one another. Look, right now against Putin, we're all saints. Like we Adolf Hitler. I mean, you take the worst of the worst in history, you're going to look great. You're going to come out looking great. God, at least I'm not like this person over here. And we can very quickly become that Pharisee. But sin is not to be understood primarily as it relates to one another. It's first understood as it relates to God. And so to help us understand this very deep concept, I want to turn to a comic. Calvin and Hobbes used to be one of my favorite comics growing up. And um, I don't know if you can see all that in your screen but uh the the second second tier there is where we really want to um and so calvin if you know he's a little boy and he has this uh uh, hobbs is his tiger that's like a act as like a like a real sage in his life in some ways and um he's and so he says there "I'm, i'm getting nervous about christmas you're worried you haven't been good that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do we have to be what, to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anyone, so that's good, right? I haven't committed any felons. I don't. Uh, I didn't start any wars. I'm not a cannibal. And he goes on and on and on. And then it's this one that says, but Hobbes says, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. And so when we're talking about sin, when we're talking about evil and injustice, what is the standard? 
And the standard, if it's against God's righteousness and holiness, then we come back to that Roman scripture. We're all in the same boat. All have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, of God's standard. Um, Michael Powell, in his great little book, uh, speaks about this idea of, of us committing sins, but then also this idea of being beholden by this power of sin, that even then when we know what we need to do, we can't do, and what we know what we shouldn't do, we kind of do. And so he says this, one can speak of sin-producing sins, the power of sin which holds sway over humanity works itself out in the specific sins of individual persons, those attitudes and behaviors which work against God's purposes for humanity as created in God's image. And so what's the result of that? The Bible spells out the result of that is far-reaching. It's in one word, death, but that death is far, far-reaching. I mean, just in Genesis 3 alone, have a look at the descriptors of what sin uh, yields, the fruit of sin, the wages of sin, if you will. Remember, it's the wages of sin, not the wages of God, right? Sin produces it. It's not God's intention. Number Genesis 3 describes as, as sin takes effect. We have shame in our relationships. There's guilt in trespassing a divine command. There's hostility within creation. We see systemic human oppression, a sense of futility in life and work, exclusion from life as God intended, obviously then physical pain, suffering, and then ultimately death. You know, sin in that way is destructive to us, and it's the most dehumanizing thing, and it's it's very offendable to God because he looks upon his creation and he sees his creation being distorted and perverted, and that he wants to do something about uh, N.T. Wright, one of my favorites, uh, says it like this. When God looks at sin, what he sees is what a violin maker would see if the player were to use his lovely creation as a tennis racket. So think about that for a moment. Right? Think about you being a violin maker. Think about the time and the energy and the effort and the purpose for which you put and craft this beautiful instrument that you're imagining how it's going to sound when someone picks it up and plays it and begins to add beauty uh, and life to the world. And then think about someone taking that and using it for the very a different purpose, a destructive purpose. And in a sense, we're getting an idea of what the gravity of our sin is about the reality. And if we're just, we're not sure about the gravity and reality of how big a deal we should make about sin. Well, this is what this series is looking about. It cost Jesus his life. It was confirmed by his awful death. So in the last few minutes, let's turn now then to our need for atonement and what Jesus then actually does about this problem of not just sins, but sin. And so scripture depicts that all human beings are need to make atonement for their sin, but lack all the power and the resource to do just that. To atone for something just means to make amends, to make things right. You know, if you ever returned something to Amazon and one of the things is, how can we make this right? You're trying to atone for the mistake, right? Ever had a bad customer experience? Hopefully on the other side of that, that company should have good customer experience uh, experience of people and should say, how can we make this right? How can we atone for our mistake? That's the idea. I think atonement, like we get that in a sense. A lot of movies and epic novels are built around the sense of atonement and redemption. It's a powerful, pervasive theme in a lot of movies, superhero movies, trying to fix something that's gone wrong. And so there's an expectation that humanity to do that, but we're powerless to do that. And so Jesus comes along and because we're unable to make atonement for our sins, he chooses to do so on our behalf, being the unique God man that he is. And he's able to be a sacrifice 
for atonement without having to be a sacrifice and atoning for his own sin. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about how for this reason Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. A priest is just someone who represents God before the people and people before God in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. All right, so let's so okay, great. Atonement for so what exactly does hap- what exactly is happening on the cross then? What does atonement look like? And so as the earliest Christians began to uh, reflect, as they began to retrospectively look at the cross, remember they were they were shocked and appalled at Jesus being crucified. You know, we get a, we must have a sense they had no idea of the purpose behind it. Their leader was being crucified. That was it. You're done. Uh, resurrection changes that a little bit when your leader is resurrected three days later. And as they began to, as Jesus probably also began to spend those 40 days with them before he ascended, as they began to understand the purpose of God with that, as they began to stand in, in the, the, the worst moment, God was doing his best work. They came to understand what was happening at the cross so much so that they began to not ignore the cross, be shamed, ashamed of the cross of their, of their leader, of their savior, of their king, but to boast and glory in the cross, to get the tattoo, to put the jewelry around the neck, to say, I am with him. Yeah, the shame of that. That's who I am with. And they understood that this is the good news that God then wants to bring to a world that needs it. And so through various metaphors and motifs and ways that they describe it, we can also understand what exactly God was accomplishing through the cross. And so there are many, there's, there's a variety of ways that we speak about, but there's under two categories that traditionally have been uh, have very helpful to understand what exactly God was doing about sins and sin. Your sin, my sin, the wolf's sin. He was making atonement for sin, for our sin, but he wasn't just making atonement for sin, just the, the cleanse the sin, forgive the sin. He was also bringing deliverance from sin's power. Now, we're going to unpack that in the next message because it's worthy of its own message. So we're going to focus a little bit just on that atonement for sin, but sometimes we can emphasize the one over the other. And it's important that we have the sense of that God wasn't just covering our sin, but he was doing something about the problem of the sin that beholdens us in its Power. So just for example, under atonement for sin, we can think of atonement for sin looks like substitution and sacrifice. In 1 John 2 verse 2, it talks about how Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean? Jesus' death was viewed as an atoning sacrifice, the perfect sin offering. You think about all, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, there's, there's parts of the Old Testament that are really hard to read, really hard to get through. I think of Leviticus being one of those books where it's just these offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings. But they were all shadows, all pointing towards this. And so Jesus becomes the offering of all offerings, the once and for all offering for your sin, my sin, past, present, future. Um, and satisfies the satisfies God's righteousness. Secondly, it looks like rescue and redemption. Jesus was crucified around the Passover. That's why so many Jews, so many people were in Jerusalem at the time. It was their pilgrimage once a year to celebrate the Passover. What was the Passover, you ask? It was the story of the Exodus, of how they recounted every year. They would talk about how, G- how God uh, saved the nation of Israel out of the slavery and the oppression of Israel. 
Egypt by the Red Sea, and they would tell that story and break bread and, and share that, that exodus, that, that we are a people that have been rescued, that have been redeemed. And so now Jesus, it's no coincidence that he gets sacrificed. He goes to the cross at this time. Why? Because he is our ultimate Passover lamb. First Corinthians talks about this. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He is the ultimate exodus story that takes us out from under the tyranny and the oppression of sin and its power and brings us liberty and calls us as a people into a better story, into a promised land. And then thirdly, another metaphor, another way we can think about what Jesus is accomplishing in terms of atoning for our sin on the cross is restored relationship. All of these have deep themes. And this is what the earliest Christians, as because they knew their Bible well, they knew their Hebrew Bible well, and they're connecting all these stories and seeing Jesus is the fulfillment of all these stories. And so here's another one. When the nation of Israel in their rebellion goes into exile, God through the prophet's Prophets would talk about this coming a day when um, I'm going to have a new relationship, a new covenant with my people, that the laws are not just going to be external, it's going to be written on the heart, and they're going to be able to know me in an intimate way, not in a way through a priest or through a pastor, but intimately one-on-one in this coming a day. And so Jesus' death was beginning to be understood as the sacrifice that ratified, that was that uh, commenced this new covenant relationship, the ultimate exile story that we're now uh, in covenant back with God. Hebrews 9 describes it like this. 9 verse 15 says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You know, every time we celebrate communion, we're going to do that at our pop-up worship service, have communion together. We remember Jesus' word, this is my blood of the new covenant. Um, and so we see that Jesus' death establishes a new way for us to be restored back into relationship with our Creator. And so finally, this all come, culminates. We come back to what is then our response. We see the righteousness, the justice, the holiness of God. His anger burns at what sin does to us, sin does through us, and He loves us enough to be cared to take it upon Himself to fix that, to atone for that, to make it right because we're helpless to do that. And he does that in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, working in perfect harmony, God the Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, saying, pronouncing justice and judgment on sin, not not just blind eyeing it, that actually accounting, atoning for sin, but then also allowing us to then feel the full effects of that atonement. And so a single dominant thread could be woven through all the diverse meanings of what was happening at the cross. We just covered a few today. We'll cover some more under the deliverance from sin uh, metaphor. But Jesus self-giving for the benefit of others, even those deemed his enemies, we could sum it up in the word of love. And it's reticent to use that word love because we just use it so flippantly in our culture. But this is what you're seeing in the cross. You're seeing the God's love for his creation, his humanity, and you're seeing it in the aspect of his justice and his mercy. That it's not just forgive and forget, that the weight of the injustice of evil and sin doesn't fall on you and it falls on him. 
but he deals with it properly, comprehensively, and then his love comes in that mercy that you and I don't have to have that judgment, that you and I get to be called justified, get to be declared righteous. Uh, I love, I love uh, John Stott. He talks about how the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. In Romans 3, we come back to that scripture. In the last verse, it talks about how God is uh, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to the shedding of his blood. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness. Could substitute that word for his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in, ju- in Jesus. To be just, he's righteous, he's holy, he doesn't, doesn't shirk that. Sin is offensive to him, he must deal with it. But he's also the justifier, he's merciful. He now declares, because he is satisfied with what he has done, absorbing our sin, the evil injustice, he now can declare you and I justified, righteous in his holy presence for those who have faith in Jesus. This is a gracious gift of God to you and me. And what do you do with the gift? You receive it. You receive it. And then you trust and you rest in Jesus' atoning work for you. That is an ongoing thing. So many times as Christians as pastors, we, we rest in other things, what I'm doing for God. You know, how, how much I did or didn't sin this past week. You know, to be fair, those are those are things we should be concerned. Our life should demonstrate more and more holiness. But make no mistake, God is satisfied with what Jesus has done to atone for our sins. And so we're to trust and rest in that. We're to trust and rest in that, that you stand before Jesus completely righteous. You stand before him just, justified. The most holy being in the universe declares you justified. And that should wreck us. That grace should make a a powerful change in our lives. That gracious gift should change the way we think, the way we live, the way we prioritize life. That should be good news to our hearts. And it should be good news to a world that's still dealing with the ramifications of sin, evil, and injustice. And so I invite you today, friend, wherever you're at, maybe for the first time or maybe for your long-standing Christian, you need to be reminded that Jesus is the atonement for your and my sin. Receive that gift, trust that gift, and rest in that gift. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.